From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. I think that's what's so often missing in thinking about the disadvantages of localism. That it is vulnerable to federal preemption. It is vulnerable to state preemption. But it is also oftentimes the birthplace of innovation because that is where local social movements uh, can draw their energy and build power. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. On today's show, labor law expert Andrew Elmore discusses mobilizable labor law, co-written with UCLA law professor and legal mobilization expert Scott Cummings about how the living wage movement in Los Angeles leveraged city power in the 1990s to create local law that facilitated union organizing in low-wage workplaces and influenced the modern rise of the fight for $15 movement calling for a national 15 minimum wage and a union for all low-wage workers. Let's go to Charlton Copeland, Associate Dean for Intellectual Life, with the interview. Hi, this is Charlton Copeland, and I am here with my colleague, Andrew Elmore, uh, who, along with uh, Scott Cummings from the University of California at Los Angeles, is the author of Mobilizable Labor Law. Um, this uh, project is, um, is really rich. It is empirically rich, and I am so honored to have the opportunity uh, to chat with uh, Andrew uh, about the project. So I want to just start in. Um, in the arc of your scholarly work, where do you place this piece? What is the, um, what is the ambition um, that, uh, that led you here from your past work? Wonderful question. First, I want to say, Charlton, I'm so delighted to be here, and um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. The article comes in the middle of a long-term project of trying to look at labor law, as I think of it, from the ground up. That is, you know, we can all read the National Labor Relations Act and understand what it is, ponder the the, the fatal flaws in it, and so on. But the real importance of labor law can only be understood, in my view, if we look at how it's practiced on the ground. Uh, and so I started uh, that with an article called uh, Labor's New Localism, uh, which looked at how city uh, unions, along with uh, other groups, worker centers, community organizations, et cetera, uh, began allying together uh, in order to transform city politics, the, 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 the law and economy of cities uh, to become more accountable to labor. Um, I, I, I wrote about it with specific reference to a number of uh, movements. Fight for 15 was loomed large in that. And then after that paper was done, I had a question about where this all came from. <laughs> How did this start? Uh, there are lots of examples throughout American history of unions working in cities. So it's not that. It's how did we see this emergent form of localism in which um, unions and these other groups uh, move translocally. That is, 
shaped city politics uh, to become more accountable to labor and then diffused uh, those ideas, uh, those norms, and, and that lawmaking uh, across to different cities. Uh, so I was incredibly lucky to uh, uh, be in a conversation with Scott Cummings, uh, who's a, a nationally recognized expert uh, in, in, in social movements and, and, and legal mobilization literature, um, and who had given me wonderful feedback about that paper and invited me to co-write uh, this one. Um, he had been essentially sitting on a, a, a rich digital archive of social movements in Los Angeles over decades uh, and had looked at it in a variety of ways, including his most recent book, um, An Equal Place, Lawyers in the Struggle for Los Angeles. Um, and he wanted to unearth the living wage movement in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. which he covered briefly in that book, but uh, not so much with a focus towards labor law. And for me, this was an incredible opportunity to see what I began to think of as the origins of modern labor localism. So give us... Um a brief description of, of what, what the paper is about. Sure. So in broad brushstrokes, the paper has a historical dimension as well as a theoretical one. The historical dimension is looking at uh, the living wage movement, which in past literature uh, has largely been described on public policy terms, right? As, a, as an economic justice intervention. Um, and reassessing it in light of where it came out of, which was, at least in Los Angeles, uh, in a hotbed of emerging immigrant worker organizing activism, uh, which began with justice for janitors, right? And we, we, we think of the living wage movement as an inflection point um, uh, in which uh, unions, along with uh, allied organizations, uh, the LA Alliance for a New Economy being an important um, uh, uh, community organization as well as policy think tank, uh, which worked with these unions as well as community groups uh, to use uh, living wage lawmaking as a way to advance unionism and build local power. Um, so that's the historical dimension. And we, we chart how uh, the living wage movement drew from lessons from Justice for Janitors and, and then transformed those lessons to adapt to new circumstances, which then were redeployed or, or exported uh, to later movements, uh, namely Fight for 15. Um, second is, is the theoretical intervention. Um, and in this respect, uh, Scott and I come from different places. Right? Uh, Scott is, is, again, um, you know, a leading expert of, 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 of social movement, uh, legal mobilization theory. and um, uh, and I don't want to speak for him, but uh, there are a number of uh, contributions uh, in in those in those literatures uh, uh, for for this piece. And then uh, labor law, uh, looking at how uh, living wage movement absolutely was animated by uh, how to advance unionism in light of NLRA preemption and the weaknesses of the NLRA. Uh, and uh, so, looking at how these groups very thoughtfully designed living wage law in order to mobilize, uh, to create the potential for mobilization, uh, became the, the, the animating uh, uh, origin of the story. So I want to, in some sense, I want to ask you whether you are, whether this paper is in tension with the other paper. Please. Um, the paper suggests that labor law has gotten short shrift. 
And in some sense, right, you are a part of the cadre of the short shrifters. That is to say that you have looked increasingly beyond labor law, even if labor law is still in the frame. You engage worker centers and other types of mobilization uh, uh, innovations that um, that that seem to either augment labor law, address its weaknesses. This paper seems to try, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, tries to reclaim a space for labor law. And I want to kind of talk about that, right? That 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 um, your earlier work says I'm looking both at labor law but beyond. Um, and this paper, in some sense, comes back to labor law at a, at a, as a sort of central focus. Is there a tension in that? Wonderful question, Charlton. And um, I would say that, generally speaking, uh, I don't know if it's a tension so much as um, over time, uh, the labor law tends to be written about um, from two different vantage points, as you point out. Right, some of the most exciting uh, worker organizing occurs entirely outside of labor law. Think about worker centers uh, organizing individuals uh, who may not even be employees under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, writing about that by itself, though, can give the impression that labor law is simply irrelevant, right? And add to that the fact that in the private sector workforce. Only six percent, right, mm -hmm. uh, of people mm -hmm. in the private sector workforce are are in unions. So if you add those two together, you might rightfully think to yourself, why would anybody possibly care about labor law? Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, there's this wonderful work going on by scholars in two different areas. Uh, you have uh, social movement scholars uh, like uh, Amna Akbar and Jocelyn Simonson and, and Samira Shar who are writing about movement lawyering, both. Um, uh, in a variety of contexts, including being a lawyer for worker centers, right? And then you have uh, uh, labor law scholars like uh, Kate Andreas and, and Benjamin Sachs, mm -hmm. who are writing about labor law as an example of countervailing law, uh, of, of, of ways in which um, uh, uh, social actors can uh, use law affirmatively um, to uh, uh, correct power imbalances to, to secure some control, right, o over, over, over the regular life. Um, what we're doing here is showing that we can bridge these conversations uh, in a way by looking at how labor law is thought of on the ground, right? Mm. It, that it is uh, one tool among others um, and that it is active, right? These are not passive instruments that are acting upon people. Uh, you have here incredibly thoughtful uh, lawyers, right, who are working uh, with unions, with worker centers, with community organizations, with policy think tanks who are thinking of law as dynamic, as having both an actual component, uh, in this case, establishing a mandatory minimum wage, right? And also a potential, right? A potential uh, to uh, facilitate unionism in this case, but also to facilitate uh, uh, mobilization more broadly uh, by uh, creating incentives uh, for, uh, in this case, employees and employers uh, to, form, uh, to, to recognize and, and deal with unions. Uh, in, in in a variety of low wage settings. So this is, uh, um, thank you for that because it takes me to one particular intervention that I think the paper makes. And this might be unfair to you because it's a kind of movement question. This 
this assertion that the lawyer is not a parasite on to the movement, but the lawyer is, um, and parasite might be a, even a problematic word, right? But but the lawyer doesn't, the lawyer is not a parasite, or and neither is the lawyer a kind of patriarchal uh, inhibitor of movements, um, but that the lawyer is integral to the development, elaboration of movements. I'm wondering, how is this related to what you just said about countervailing law? Is it, is, is that reimagined movement lawyer's role specific to spaces of, of countervailing law in which they get to be both expert and creative and dynamic? One aspect of this story that uh, we sought to bring out is the idea that lawyers can be active partners, right? And, and I think that gets to what you're talking about, that in the literature, which, you know, I don't want to do an injustice to this literature because it is gigantic and many people say different things. But I think it is fair to say that a lot of social movement literature, uh, when it talks about law, tends to talk about litigation, mm -hmm right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is a space of lawyers and lawyers only, mm -hmm. right? By, mm -hmm. by, by design. Um, and so by shifting the discussion to policymaking, right? A space in which uh, lawyers and lay people really can, mm -hmm. can participate. Mm -hmm. It does change the tone of the conversation, right? It, it becomes more about an active partnership uh, between uh, lawyers, between people who understand law, like, uh, say union leaders mm -hmm. who might even have a law degree, but mm -hmm. may not be practicing, right? And others who, who are just expert in their own domains having to do with the movements that they're operating in, uh, all acting together and intentionally designing law for pro-movement ways. Uh, there has not been so much literature about this. And so for us to be able to reveal that story in archives uh, where we can uh, uh, elevate a kind of lawyering uh, that uh, speaks to uh, what these other scholars are talking about, <clears throat> Uh, but in a way that, that, that can actually chart it over time, over decades, and see uh, not only the intentions behind it, uh, but also its various dimensions, right? Uh, uh, counteracting agency backsliding, mm -hmm, for example, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, getting us deep into the, the messy, uh, porous nature of how movements operate within local spaces. Uh, I think gives us a richer account of what no, we and understood it, before. And it, 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 it sort of changes in some sense the, the geography of this, right? Because there's a sense in which one thinks, even when one thinks about policy advocacy that arises out of social movements, the policy advocacy then becomes, in some sense, the landing space. The story you tell is far more iterative. That is to say, it's a lawyers are are handing off, receiving the pass, handing the baton back. There's a kind of back and forth and and a kind of accountability that that seems present in this. That you know, once we go to court, we go to court, and and it's like you said, and the suits come in. Or once we go to the highbrow agencies, we we write comments, and different suits come in. This is different. Yes, and one important piece of this. Uh, is that whereas with litigation, right? Say preemption, mm -hmm. you know, preemption story's over, right? A, a, a local triumph defeated, right? Uh, here, it's a different story. It's a story about developing a repertoire, right? That's how we describe it. So a choreography, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in which 
uh, lessons are learned. Uh, some in, in our paper, there was a, a, a preemption of a local living wage law in Santa Monica. That didn't end the story, though, right? They, they took the basic ideas and, and, and baked into their next campaign uh, the very counter responses that they, that they encountered in the previous campaign. Uh, and over time, we see that repertoire repeated over and over, refined, and then exported, right? And so while some of these innovations, as we describe mm -hmm. them, were really invented by people who I would describe as sort of elite lawyers, they then became baked into a standard repertoire repeated uh, uh, in a wide variety of settings, including by you know worker centers that that might not have access right. to uh, what we would describe as elite lawyers. Well, I think that this that, then 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 you've got to add to the contributions that this paper makes. That is to say that the paper I think then makes a contribution to how we think about the process of policy learning, policy diffusion, right? That that and that is an important right. That the sort of lay elite. Uh, exchange, I think, is 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 so important. I, we are running short, and I'm going to ask you one more question. It is going to be less optimistic. The paper seems to presuppose. The paper tells a story of a period in which incubation, and it uses that word, happens. I don't know that we still live in an era of the incubation. That is to say, um, uh, Alex uh, uh, Hertel Fernandez, right? Uh, Jake Grumbeck, and you know both of these folks have talked about a certain kind of acceleration of and a certain kind of relocation of a polarized partisan politics to exactly the sites that you and Scott are examining in this project, is the incubation period that you, in, in this story, already history? Wonderful question. Obviously more than we can dig into in one minute, but let me take a quick, a quick stab, which is the work that you just mentioned, uh, Herzl Fernandez, Grumbach, wonderful work, cautionary tales, mm -hmm. right? About not only where we are, but where we're headed. And, you know, I am not alone among many scholars being worried about democracy, right? <laughs> the future of democracy. Um, so, but I think we need to understand um, the place of localism in this struggle, right? And I think that's what's so often missing in thinking about the disadvantages of localism, mm -hmm. that it is vulnerable to federal preemption. It is vulnerable to state preemption, but it is also oftentimes the birthplace of innovation because that is where local social movements uh, can draw their energy and build power. Now, can it, can it be uh, 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 extinguished? Of course, but then you see examples over and over again, uh, not necessarily in the classic blue states like California, but also in Missouri, in Florida, in, in Minnesota, uh, of places where um, social movements can pivot, can scale up, can become uh, uh, creative and necessarily so. So this is not me being triumphalist, mm -hmm. right? I, mm -hmm. I, I want to mm -hmm. make that as mm -hmm. clear as I can. Mm -hmm. um, but it is to say that social movements will be around uh, so long as people have the ability to maneuver within a local space in order to innovate. I am going to leave it there. Um, this conversation, uh, 
as rich as it is, is not nearly as rich as as this really excellent paper is. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to, Charles, to chat. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this season of The Explainer. We'll be back in January with a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is sponsored by Miami Law's five centers and institutes, including the Ralphie Boyer Institute on Condominium and Cluster Development and the Center for Ethics and Public Service. For more information, visit law.miami.edu. Thank you.